0: What is net zero, and how can we get there?
1: Can we mitigate the damage of three centuries of fossil fuel-powered industrialization with three decades of new energy infrastructure?
0: And can we continue to enjoy the ease and comfort that industrialization has brought us, without leaving the planet and the next generation subject to a constant onslaught of floods and fires, droughts and famines?
1: Since the 1960s, the environmental movement has warned with increasing alarm of the path of doom we are walking.
0: It is a challenge that is foremost in the minds of many children and young people who see the world they grow up in being put at risk by today's adults.
1: And it's one that politicians and business leaders around the world have belatedly recognised.
0: At the Paris Climate Summit in 2015, world leaders agreed to ensure that all anthropogenic
1: or human-caused
0: greenhouse gas emissions, are balanced by carbon sinks by the middle of the century. The aim was also to limit the rise in global average temperatures.
1: In 2019, the UK and France both put into law a clearer target. The countries would aim to achieve net zero by 2050. The same year, the EU adopted a similar target in its Green Deal. And in December 2020, tabled an amendment that would commit the region to cutting 2030 emissions by 55% from current levels.
0: In North America, the previous US administration walked away from the Paris Climate Agreement, but their northern neighbours have joined governments around the world in setting clear targets. The Canadian government has committed to the same 2050 net zero targets.
1: So that's the strategy. But as Sun Tzu said,
0: Strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory, and tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat.
1: How can we pick the technological and policy tactics that will help us achieve the strategy of net zero?
0: And how can we make sure the tactics we choose are truly aligned with that strategy, without undermining each other or creating new, unforeseen risks? Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher.
1: And I'm Ryan Owen.
0: In this episode, we are travelling to Canada. We have partnered with SNC-Lavalin, which has released a new report, Engineering Net Zero.
1: In this report, it considers the steps needed for Canada to achieve its net zero aims.
0: While Canada is rich in renewables, and indeed, it already produces 80% of its electricity using non-greenhouse gas sources, it, like countries around the world, has a daunting task in front of it.
1: In order to reach net zero, Canada will need to electrify.
0: Based on their study and their sources, the SNC report explains that Canada will have to triple its generation capacity from 500 terawatt hours in 2020 to 1,500 terawatt-hours in 2050.
1: At the same time, Canadians will need to reduce their individual energy consumption. And the Canadian provinces, which play a significant role in development under the country's federal systems, will have to work together closely with each other and with the federal government in Ottawa.
0: In a moment, we'll take a closer look at the details of SNC's recommendations and talk to their experts about the particular challenges Canada faces. But first, let's get to grips with some of the issues governments face around the world, with an expert at SNC's UK subsidiary. Here's
2: Dave Cole. I'm director of the power business for SNC Lavalin in UK and Europe, and I've also been working for a number of years on our engineering net zero work.
1: Dave has a chart, which you will find in the show notes. But before you look, we
0: should probably offer a content warning.
1: It's pretty scary.
0: It shows the new power generation capacity added in the UK since the 1960s, and what will be needed in order for the country to reach net zero. On the historic side, you can see flurries of activity around different generating technologies.
2: So to the left, you've got what what was commissioned and put on the bars generating electricity in that year. You can see how we built in sequence of technology. So we built coal, then we built nuclear, Then we built gas, and then we built wind. At most, the highest I think it ever goes is around 6 gigawatts of generating capacity.
0: And then you look at the right of the chart, which shows projected demand if the UK is to move to net zero. This is where the chart gets really scary.
1: It looks like a cliff face, a huge jump in requirements.
0: And just remember that 6 gigawatt historic maximum, and that for many years the UK added no new capacity.
1: So now the UK needs to add
2: 9 to 12 gigawatts per annum. And that was an estimate from the Committee for Climate Change. And in our Race to Net Zero paper, we we did a bottom-up assessment of that and said, yes, that looks about right. That's something we've never achieved before. And not only is it 9 to 12 gigawatts per annum, we're also probably going to have to build a lot of these technologies all at the same time in a system that's changing quite a lot. So I prob- I'm building nuclear, I'm building wind, I'm probably going to need to build new gas with carbon capture and storage. I'm probably going to need to build a hydrogen infrastructure at the same time and decarbonise all the other demand stuff that we've talked about in terms of transport, heat, industry, etc. And you go, right, we're not going fast
0: enough. Building that capacity will take skills and equipment, as well as material resources.
1: It's not a question of government just pumping money into the problem.
0: It's going to need huge numbers of people who plan for a working life, building new generating capacity and can develop their skills for that career.
1: And it's going to take construction and engineering firms, among many others, that can plan for and develop businesses serving the sector.
0: The good news is that people are entering the business.
2: The ambition and the desire to be involved in making a difference and building a net zero world is really high and a lot of the people that are joining our organization coming out of university they want to join a business that's got a good understanding of it and they want to to develop the skills that help achieve net zero and you know we've, we've, we've had some really good discussions with people joining our nuclear business so going, this is this is great you know I, I want to be building nuclear power because it's zero carbon we have projects electrifying offshore oil assets to reduce the carbon associated with them. We've got people working on hydrogen storage. Can you store massive amounts of hydrogens on subsurface caverns and wells an area we have some skills. you know people want to learn all of these things because it's making a difference at scale is where highly skilled engineers and project delivery organizations can can make a big difference to actually make it happen. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about the, the, the graduates, the apprentices uh, that are joining our business, as I'm sure many of my peers and competitors are as well. I think it's a, it's a very exciting time to be in this kind of industry.
1: The bad news is that government isn't yet laying out the long-term strategy that will allow those young engineers, employers, to commit to and invest in a steady stream of generating projects.
2: If you have a project pipeline where you end up with gaps between projects, so say we don't move to another nuclear power station quickly enough after Hinkley Point C, the capability and skill set then rapidly drops off. We're not going to hang around, are we? So we're going to go and do some other things. And then I've forgotten how to build that power station again, which was the first power station we built in the UK for 30 years, and we're trying to relearn how to do it. And the longer we wait, the bigger the mounting gets.
0: So governments need to plan and they need to commit resources long-term.
1: There are a couple of concepts that David uses to think about how governments should plan their investment in generation and their net zero strategy more broadly.
0: The first is the energy trilemma.
1: That's like a dilemma, but instead of just getting two problems, you get an extra one for free.
0: A tripod is one of the simplest and most stable structures there is, but as soon as one leg of that structure is out of balance, the whole thing collapses.
1: That's what happened recently in Texas, where an energy system focused on just one leg cost collapsed.
0: So what are the three legs of a stable energy system? And what is the energy trilemma?
2: So there's the balancing act between sustainability, cost and security of supply. So as you, as you tweak one of those and you say, actually, I, w- I, want, to be, I want net zero by 2050, which is a, which is a pinning of the energy trilemma, very hard pinning, actually, once we put it into law. We go, right, OK, that's great. Then we have an energy white paper that comes out that sort of implies that there's going to be no overall increase in cost. So we're going to, we're going to try and keep this steady as we go through, through innovation and technology, et cetera, et cetera, although there will, there will be investments to be made and we will attract private investments to do that and so on. So you're saying, well, OK, so my cost is going to move around a little bit, but it, it's, it's hard to tell. Then you've got security of supply. So is this going to be a resilient system? How is this system going to operate compared to how it operates today? Am I going to have a system where demand side, I'm going to ask people to turn off using the electricity system because we haven't got enough? Or will we be able to cope with that because of our smart management of the system, because we've got vehicle to grid charging so we can do to produce that as a source? Does that actually work? Has some energy storage come on that makes it all easy, much easier to balance. And what hazard are we designing to? I mean, Texas is a salutary lesson to us in resilience of something we take for granted. And the impact of climate change has an effect on our weather system, which means it's much harder to predict. And therefore the, you know, the, the, the challenges our energy system faces become much harder to predict. So what, what do you design to? Do you d- design to an extreme event or three quarters of a the way there and then you go I'll just take I'll take the pain when it happens?
1: To help plan for increased generating capacity, for reducing demand and for balancing the three legs of the energy dilemma, Dave has another concept. He calls it the energy system architect and it's something that he's explored in another white paper.
2: In our energy system architect paper we actually can comp- compared a number of these scenarios from various bodies, be they the CCC, be they National Grid, be they uh, National Infrastructure Commission, and gone, well, how are we ending up in these different situations? But more importantly, what does that mean for us today in what we should be doing to de-risk the pathway to whatever the net zero system would look like? And I think one of the roles as, as an engineer, or as engineers, is to simplify these things and go, all right, so we don't really know where we're going to end up. And it's based on a lot of assumptions. And those assumptions are not just about cost. They're about availability of skills, availability of raw materials, how the system might work, behavior of society and consumers in how they want to use energy and, and do they want to, what they want to electrify and how we might decarbonize heat and transportation. You know, These, these are big, have big effects on what we might do. So you go, right, bring it back. What do we know? We know our build rate in the UK is currently well below the build rate we need it to be for the amount of electrical supply we want in terms of gigawatts. Even if you, you, know, you build a really efficient system, you're still probably going to need to double the electrical output that we rely on because of electrifying transportation and decarbonising heat, in, in which, whichever way, shape or form you do it. And given the things that are going to disappear over the next 10 years, Over the next 10 years, we'll probably lose half of our gas turbines that are currently operational. We'll lose a fair bulk of our nuclear fleet, which is obviously zero carbon and and quite a big help in terms of low carbon electricity. And we'll probably have to start looking at refurbishing some of the renewables that we've built over the past uh, couple of decades. So there's a lot, lot to do just to stand still, let alone start to build up. And around that, we've got to build a whole new infrastructure of potentially carbon capture and storage which we don't have any of yet in the UK, and also a fledgling hydrogen industry. And we're not entirely sure what we're going to use that for yet, but let's build some and see how it goes.
1: Once you have a rough idea of where your goal is, come back and make five and 10 year plans. To deliver those, Dave calls for an energy system architect, which sets intermediate milestones and coordinates all of the various parties.
0: So that's how SNC-Lavalin and Atkins are developing concepts to plan for net zero in the UK and Europe.
1: But how is the SNC-Lavalin team in Canada using concepts like this to develop their engineering net zero proposals?
0: And first of all?
1: What is Canada?
0: What are the characteristics of the country? Characteristics that shape its approach to the energy trilemma? A vast
3: territory, most of the population is concentrated in the south in about a 100-kilometre-wide band, which is just north of the border with the United States. And we have a lot of First Nations or Aboriginal communities who live farther up north uh, in relatively uh, isolated areas. We have uh, a lot of hydro, a lot of renewable energy in
4: Canada.
5: Climate change and the environment is deemed to be, by the provinces, an area of their jurisdiction. They have jurisdiction over resources, certainly. However, the federal government believes, especially on the international commitments front and treaties front, and also from their perspective, that they have a role to play in climate change and the environment and net zero commitments. And so one, one can conclude that, that, that at the very least, there's a shared jurisdiction uh, in this regard. That was? Sam Bajubis. I um, am Vice President, Government Relations, and also do support work for multilateral development institutions, particularly those on the Atlantic, uh, on the Atlantic side in Washington.
1: And? Sébastien Mousseau.
4: I'm leading a uh, business unit that is called Power, Grid and Industrial Solutions. And Rami Azar, I'm VP of
3: Engineering and Chief Technical Officer for everything related to power grids and
0: renewable energies. So, we know Canada is a big country.
1: We know its population is largely all concentrated in one strip of land, close to the border with the US.
0: But that it also has many indigenous communities, who often live far from the electrical grid in the north of the country.
1: We know it has plentiful supplies of renewable energy.
0: And that many of the powers of government don't lie with the central government, but with the provinces.
1: So what are the results of that?
0: Jose Restrepo is global head of engineering for Lynxon, a Hitachi ABB power grids and snc Lavelin company that delivers electrical substation projects he explains how Canada's economic and political structure has shaped its electricity network.
4: Canada's uh, the electricity landscape is really a, a reflection of other, all other economic activities in Canada, uh, which are mostly driven by natural resources, also the location of the population centres, and, and to a great extent, the political realities in Canada. Just to keep in mind, The generation, the power generation in Canada is already roughly around 80% from non-emitting resources, and and since the years 2000, there has been a reduction on uh, emissions associated with power generation, or of around between 35 and 40%. It has been recognized. This is not a a completely revolutionary idea, but it has been recognized that a stronger uh, trans-Canadian power transmission system. So the one that connects the different provinces west to east or east to west, depending how you see it, is, is a good idea. And it's a good idea because there are certain complementarities between the provinces that allow to take advantages of resource diversity, so hydro versus solar versus other type of resources, but also about consumption diversities. Consumption patterns of each province is different. So there is a diversity there that can be exploited to actually optimise the system.
1: Canada also has some of the longest transmission lines in the world.
4: The transmission lines connecting James Bay to, to the load centres in Montreal and Quebec uh, are already uh, <clears throat> fairly long. So uh, from, from a pure technical point of view, the feasibility of the concept has been established. That being said, it doesn't mean that it's, it's easy. It requires a significant investment. It requires a lot of political will, and it requires uh, a lot of coordination. But they are, are feasible, but there are challenges. Some of the challenges are also uh, arising from the migration of the predominant generation resources Uh, away from the traditional large hydro and large thermal generation and moving into uh, more uh, wind, for example, or solar, uh, or distributed generation, making the solutions or requiring the solutions to be a little bit more innovative.
0: A key challenge for Canada is the divergent interests of the provinces.
1: As we were recording this podcast, the country's Supreme Court ruled on a case brought by three provinces
0: Ontario, Alberta, and Saskatchewan
1: that claimed the federal government had overstepped its powers when it sought to implement a national carbon tax.
0: The court ruled in favour of the federal government. But the case demonstrates that the country's approach to climate change can't be easily decided on and implemented at a purely national level.
1: One thing the federal government can do is set aims and measures for net zero.
5: They've introduced a piece of legislation, the Canadian Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act, and they're going to try and pass it before the House rises um, you know, this summer and and, before, and hopefully before an election so that they can enshrine the commitment and legally bind the government to a process of achieving net zero. Uh, set up rolling emissions reductions targets and plans, set up a net zero advisory body, publish annual reports, enshrine accountability and transparency into the plan, and to provide for third-party review.
0: But key aspects of implementation lie with the provinces.
1: And some are not as enthusiastic
5: as others.
0: Or at least, they want to go about achieving net zero in their own ways.
5: Quebec has already introduced a climate change plan for 2030 and they've also made a commitment to reach carbon neutrality by 2050, which is slightly different from a net zero commitment by 2050, but at least they're on the path towards carbon neutrality. The new government in British Columbia will introduce legislation to make the same commitment that the federal government has made, a net zero commitment by 2050, I believe. We'll wait for that legislation to come forward. Ontario has not taken such actions yet. However, uh, public sector utilities such as Ontario Power Generation have corporately made a net zero commitment to 2040. And so, and other corporates within Ontario have also made such commitments. The province of Alberta, which is resource rich on the oil and gas front, as well as Saskatchewan, are going to do it their way. The the Premier of Alberta has specifically said we're going to do it Alberta's way and have referred to the federal commitment to net zero by 2050 as an aspirational target.
1: Alberta's position in terms of its own targets and its attempt to block the national carbon tax highlight one of the sources of tension.
0: The province's oil and gas resources are a key contributor to the national economy.
1: And the province's economic position is largely tied to those resources, as are the jobs of many Albertans.
0: So how does a democratic federal system achieve net zero aims without stepping on the rights and livelihoods of its citizens in a province like Alberta?
5: Alberta is pre- is preferring to provide incentives and to develop the technology to reach the net zero commitments and climate change commitments that they will be obligated to undertake and so to that end they themselves have asked the federal government for 30 billion dollars Canadian for the development of carbon capture utilization and sequestration technology and the federal government is considering it.
3: However there's a lot of renewable generation that is still untapped in the neighboring provinces namely for example in British Columbia but they are very weakly linked uh, as far as the electrical grid is concerned. And although on a pure technical basis, ignoring everything else, the technical solution could be found by using natural resources in British Columbia to uh, power Alberta, the, the policies and the incentives are not in place right now to do that. Uh, each province is looking after right now its own uh, economy and power and energy is a very uh, is a very provincial act in itself the technology related to the interconnection is very well known it is the economics that are not uh, that are not in place at the present time the federal government makes a commitment but in the end the implementation lies with the canadian population and with the local governments such as Uh, city councils and provincial governments. So they have to take the commitment and make it their own, and there have got to be incentives to do this. One example, suppose Canada decides to develop some offshore wind generation, which is, for example, one of the main solutions for the UK net zero. Canada is exposed to two oceans, on the east and on the west side, and is a very large country from one coast uh, to the next. So the wind resource is available in the Pacific and especially in the Atlantic. Some projects are being discussed in development. However, how would we get the electricity generated by wind to the load centers that are away from the coast? Uh, which is the case. So the, the, the load level in the maritime provinces of Canada, for example, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, the loads are relatively small compared to uh, Quebec, Ontario, uh, Alberta, etc. So we would need to be able to get that electricity from the coast to the inside of
0: the country. So the Canadian provinces can't just consider their own position.
1: And the national government can't impose a solution.
0: What, then, are the risks to implementing a Canadian net zero solution?
1: And how can government at different levels, along with citizens and other stakeholders, overcome these challenges?
3: I think the first and foremost risk, in my opinion, is, again, mixing politics with science. The uh, commitment that was made today was made by our government. Uh, by 2050, everybody there will have changed So it's really a commitment that looks good right now on a a political front, but unless it's accompanied by actions, uh, it will not be followed up uh, by anything. So this is one risk.
0: The other risk is for Canada to keep working as a set of separate provinces.
3: And then there is the risk of working as a set of different industries, for example, to look at the electrification of transport, but without looking necessarily at the increase needed in renewable energy. Or is the same thing with heavy industry, with the uh, waste disposal, with uh, other loads? The other risk, which I think is a predominant one, is public awareness and the uh, social change.
1: Rami says that although people have heard about government commitments and they understand that electric cars are good, the sheer size of the net zero challenge, and what it will mean is lost on them. And there needs to be a lot of education.
3: And finally the last risk would be in my opinion for Canada not to be leading by example. So if you look at the planet, Canada is a relatively minor producer of greenhouse gases compared to other large countries like the United States, Russia, India, China, etc. Even if Canada reaches net zero in terms of limiting the temperature increase and in climate change on the planet, it will be a drop in the ocean. In order to be able to get uh, an actual uh, effect on the planet, Canada needs to lead by example.
0: Achieving that will take close collaboration.
1: It will take something like David Cole's energy system architect idea.
0: And a big challenge is…
4: The lack of coordination and collaboration between provinces. We should have some kind of an architect of the system that is thinking about what, what should we do as Canadians to achieve that. And right now, I feel that that link, that communication between provinces and with the federal government is not happening as much as we should be. We need to start to work together. We need to collaborate. We will need all these power sources that we have in Canada, and we
0: should stop these fighting that we have internally. So can we make it?
1: Can we work together to achieve net zero, not just in Canada and the UK, but around the world?
0: Here's David Cole, the man with the scary chart again.
1: Does he think the challenge is insurmountable?
2: I'm hoping with the kind of engagement, support to governments, and the discussion around sustained policy, which could bring private investment into getting these things going, with government support, that we could really make some fast progress in building a lot of really brilliant engineering projects in power generation, in transportation, in infrastructure that all have to work together and improve lives, create jobs and bring us to net zero. But if we don't build at the pace we need to, we won't do all of those things.
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Will North, Velo Mitrovic, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written by Will North. Editing and hosting was by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own shining example is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, SNC-Lavalin. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.